It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with iconic animator and director Gary Truesdale. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. featured guest tonight is an animator and director whose work on some of the most iconic 2D animation films ever made has earned him a permanent place, in my mind, in the greatest animators of all time category. His directing credits, along with collaborator Kirk Wise, include nothing less than such incredible films as Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Here to chat about his incredible career is none other than director Gary Truesdale. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So I- I'm a little curious about life what life was like for you before CalArts. What was it like for you growing up in, in California and, before and how Cal did Arts. film and everything? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that, that was so long ago. I can hardly remember. Um, I mean, I've, I've always, I've always liked to draw, um, you know, have, have drawn since I was pretty much old enough to hold crayons. Um, and I was attracted to Disney just because they had great animation. Um, even at a young age, I could kind of tell the difference between, you know, like, okay, Rocky and Bowinkle was always really funny to me, but I could always tell the animation kind of sucked that it was, that it was hilariously written. Um, not, not that I, you know, as a six year old could understand that it was actually written, but that it was funny but it didn't. It just didn't look as good as something like, uh, as you know, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, or or Sleeping Beauty, or um, even the Warner Brothers ones, which I was a big fan. Um, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, Porky Pig, Sylvester. You know that whole, the the whole uh, gang there, which that's really that was really my love of cartoons. You know, as as much as I like Disney and seeing, oh wow, there's you know they they're so meticulous in in their uh, in their animation. It was the humor and the character in uh, um, the, the old Warner Brothers stuff, the Foghorn Leghorn, and you know all of those. Also, um, my dad was was a fan, particularly of, of uh, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, um, and that was my get out of jail free card on Saturday mornings. Because instead of having to go out and rake leaves or mow the lawn or something like that, Dad would be sitting in front of the, the TV. I okay, I'm 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 there with you. So you get to spend time with dad and get out and of the, the cartoons kind of and not mow the lawn. I mean, yeah, it was the, the, the hat trick right there. Um, Were your parents or grandparents artistic in any way? My mom was. My mom was craftsy. You know, I mean, she she could draw and she could paint, um, but she liked making things. She liked working with her hands. My, my grandmother was a seamstress. Um, my dad was an athlete. You know, I mean, he he. Um, he lied about his age to get into the army and uh um after a stint in the artillery where he lost his hearing uh or uh, you know the high end of his hearing he um um he got into special services which in in the army is like the band or you know something like so he was he was an athlete he was in the army the army uh track team football team basketball team so um yeah, he wasn't he wasn't particularly artistic. He was very organized and, you know, and very athletic, but uh it was my mom that had that gene, I suppose. You chose a really interesting time to study animation with technology and movie making changing in major ways at the time. What made you choose animation and could you at all foresee the advent of 3D animation and the end of 2D 
on the horizon while you were actually studying? Well, when I was, um, um, I, I guess when I was in high school, um, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really consider animation as a, you know, as, as a viable career. I did. It didn't occur to me that you could do that and make a living. Um, I wanted to be an architect, you know, and so I, I was studying drafting and, and mechanical drawing and, you know, all, all that stuff. And um, then I started failing math in a spectacular fashion um, and thought, okay, I got to figure out something to do. And my high school had a, had a career day where they had different people from all walks of life come in and talk to students. And, you know, there were firemen and pilots and nurses, and, you know, all, all these different people. And one of them was, was an animation student from CalArts, you know, which, wow, CalArts, never heard of it. <clears throat> so I had, I had already figured out, and I thought I was a genius for this, like in the fourth grade, that if you take a, a pad of paper and draw on the different pages and flip, flip through it, it, it would move. I thought, I've discovered, you know, sliced bread. Um, so so this, this woman from CalArts had us doing stuff like that and like drawing with Sharpie on blank um, film leader. And, and then she ran it through a projector and there's like maybe eight or nine people in that little seminar. But the, the, the real takeaway was CalArts is an animation school just out in Valencia, which was like, you know, 45 minutes from me. So I thought, I got to check this out. You know, went and looked at it and applied and you needed a, a you needed a portfolio, which I didn't even have a portfolio. I didn't even know what one was. And uh, I, a, a, a buddy of mine in, in school, his mom was a painter. She did like landscape and, and still life and portrait and all that. And closest thing I knew to an artist. So I, I asked her about, what's a portfolio and she helped me put one together applied was accepted and at that time animation was it, it wasn't as widespread as it is now i mean it was it, there was certainly some animation coming out of out of like spain and italy and and uh um i believe it was czechoslovakia at that time um and then certainly uh coming out of japan and a little bit out of korea but um and the aforementioned Rocky and Bowinkle was coming out of Mexico. So, um, you know, it was around, but like the U S animation industry wasn't huge. So it, basically it was Disney and Warner brothers had already kind of closed down. It was filmation and Hanna-Barbera and a, a few other smaller, well, not small at that time, a few other places. And then, and then the smaller commercial houses, you know, because there's, there's still a lot of hand-drawn animation being done for, Exxon and Levi's and, you know, all, all these different uh, corporations, mm -hmm. <laughs> but nothing digital yet. You know, when I got into, when I finally got into uh, Disney, um, I got in on the, um, the effects team on the black cauldron in 1983, I believe. And um, they were just, just, just starting um, to, to monkey around with, with digital. And at that time, they didn't even call it digital. I mean, they were they were printing out wireframe things on you know wireframe structures on pieces of paper and then giving it to the uh, assistants to like draw over it you know in a clean animation cartoon line. Um, I know this because I did some of those. Um, the uh, there was like a particular rowboat that was moving around on the water and you know the perspective was changing and the lines of the planks were changing, 
And those were all plotted out in real sketchy uh, wireframe and then given to the assistants. That was us. And then we drew over it, you know, in the smooth line and put the wood grain in and, you know, handed that off to the painters. Um, so that was, that was the extent of digital back then. And, and people really weren't that worried about it. You know, it wasn't until, I don't think it was until John Lasseter, you know, put together, um, you know, some of his little shorts, uh, Luxo and Tin Toy and, you know, th those that people started to really like perk up and go, Hey, this is, this is something. And, you know, and that was, that was a few years, that was a few years down the line still. So now it was at Cal Arts that I guess as fate would have it, you met your future collaborator, Kirk Wise. What was your very first memory of Kirk? Kirk was in, I think he was two years behind me. Um, and I mean, I, he was, he was one of these guys that he stood out a little bit from the rest of the group. And these groups are all, um, I've, I've heard this term, um, you know, for, for like actors as well. It was a box of puppies. You know, everybody wants to be th yeah. the most adorable and, and the most, the most on and, and, you know, all of the classes are like that to one degree or another. And his class was like that as well. But Kirk kind of stood out because he was like, you could tell there was like something going on inside. It wasn't just like, I want to, you know, I want to be the craziest. It was, he had, um, he had a real funny streak to him, but it was a kind of a thoughtful, funny streak. And he was really quick. He was really fast. And, you know, I've said that ever since. It's like, well, Kirk's the smart one and I'm the funny looking one. So that he, he he's, if you want a good sound bite, talk to Kirk. And could you in any way sense a, a brotherhood or kindred spirit with him in your initial conversations with him? Or did that come later? That came later. Yeah. I mean, he was, there, there was a lot of people that, you know, and we all hung out and we all had fun and we all, you know, we were all kind of hoping, God, you know, we're going to work together someday. And Kirk and Chris Sanders and Chris Bailey and Kelly Asbury and Kevin Lima and, you know, just all these different people that were, they were kind of going through at the same time and all in this big stew, Joe Ramp, Kathy Zielinski, you know, all, all Dave Prexma, all of these people. And it, it was uh, this crazy mix of personalities and talent. And, you know, it was, it was really great. So picking out one at that time was, was a little, was a little tough. There were like Joe Ramp. I knew he was something, you know, he was something special. He, he was, there was, there was something about Joe, but, um, but he was older than me as well. So it's, it's that experience thing that I looked up to. Was your first real collaborative work with Kirk working on Oliver and company? Um, I think it was the real, the first real collaborative work. Cause we both worked on Oliver and company, but I think he was a, he was an animator on, on that. And I was in storyboard. It was, I don't think it was until uh, rescuers down under that we go, both got put into story and we're right next to each other. Our, our desk, you know, cubicles were right next to each other. So, you know, there was like a row of desks and Kirk was there, Ed Gombert was there, um, Kelly was there. I mean, it, it, was, it was a fun little group. Could, could you then kind of sense a creative spark between you guys or did that come Oh, out? yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Kirk and I were, were, I think we were the first two that were kicked off of that project because we both had... <laughs> bad attitudes so we 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 that's where we kind of bonded and went all right we're in this we're in this you and me guy you know and that's when we got put into the development department 
Now, for all of us uh, average Joes, you and Kirk literally burst onto the scene with what is considered one of the best animated films of all time, Beauty and the Beast. How did that job find its way to you guys? <laughs> that was uh, pure luck. No, not pure luck. But um, Kirk and I, uh, I, I, I just hinted we've been put into the development department. And at that time, development was a lot different than development departments now where you've, you've got teams of people like going over, going over submitted scripts and books and radio plays and whatever, you know, they can like think, what, what can I, what can I make a, a film out of? Back then it was a bunch of artists. We called it daycare. Um, it was, it was a bunch of artists that Disney didn't want to fire, but didn't have any work for. So <laughs> they put us in this, in this building and um, our boss would just like come in and go, all right, everybody, um, start drawing Mickey Mouse and Halloween. And we'd all, and that was all the direction we get. And we go, all right, you know, there's no script, no nothing. It's like, okay, here's goofy as Frankenstein is Donald with a ghost on his you know, sheet on his head and Mickey with a pumpkin. Um, and then, you know, a week later he'd run in and tell us something else. So it was one of those situations where we were just like drawing something and he came in and said, all right, drop everything. We've got this project. Um, it was it was a project for Epcot Center uh, in Florida, and there was a ride that was being put into to Epcot. Was that, that Cranium Command? Cranium Command, and they had this four and a half minute pre-show that you put in the lineup area to kind of inform guests what you're going to see, what you're in for. <clears throat> excuse me, um, and you know keep them keep them from getting too restless. So that they the the company Disney had contracted with a with a uh, studio up in the Bay Area, and they had this pencil test you know already well underway, and they showed it to us, and our boss is like, you know, like this the whole time, and we're watching it, and we're like, this this kind of this kind of sucks, you know, this isn't very good, and he said, yeah, that's exactly. So here's our job, we have to. Uh, we we have to like rethink and reboard this. Okay, what are the parameters? The only parameters were were um, it was going to be called Cranium Command. There is going to be um, a, an audio animatronic character that's that's going to you know symbolize our subconscious or our conscious. You know that's that's in this um, ultimately in this room like like flying flying your brain like you would a, a a jet you know so he's in this seat and there's controls all around and screens for the eyes and and different body parts and the um the the leader of this group is is the the military commander general knowledge and that was pretty much all we had so we said all right let's let's you know kick this around a little bit and we had like a week to turn it around and um because it, um, at that time, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Frank Wells, they had said, no, cut this one off. Why, why don't we give this to our own guys? You know, why, why are we farming this out? Um, and it was, it, you know, in their defense, in this, in this other group's de defense, it was being spearheaded by Metropolitan Life. That was the, the sponsor of the, uh, of the um, pavilion. And Metropolitan Life isn't really known for its funny cartoons or, you know, entertaining storytelling. So, you know, they, they were doing the best they could with what they had. But um, our bosses said, no, give, give it to our guys. You know, we, we can do better than this. So in a week after watching, 
you know, a bunch of movies about drill sergeants and, you know, that, that kind of thing. We, we came in, we reboarded it, pitched it, boom, sold. All right, go. So Rob Minkoff was put on, put in charge of that. And Kirk and I looked at the, um, uh, the reel for the main show, which was like a 12 minute show. And we said, you got bigger problems than just the, uh, just a four and a half minute pre-show. This, this is also, this is also kind of bad. And so Jerry Reese, um, picked Kirk and myself to go to Florida and reboard and redesign and rewrite the main show while he directed the, the live action. So we spent several months down in Florida doing that. In the meantime, um, one of the Roger Rabbit shorts had, had a problem and Rob Minkoff was pulled off of Cranium Command and put onto Roger Rabbit. Cranium Command suddenly had no director. The, the pre-show had no director. Kirk and I were the only ones who knew anything about it. And so they threw us onto it. So that's that was our that was our directing debut. It was a ninety day project that we got up and got running and and got through, and it was reasonably successful. I mean, people liked it. And um, afterwards, we were like, "Whew, boy, that was exhausting." I was glad that's over with. And like two, three weeks later, we got called into our boss's office again and said, um, "Can you be on a plane on Wednesday? This is a Monday morning. Can you be on a plane on Wednesday to New York? You might get to direct Beauty and the Beast." And we were like, what? So the backstory in that was um, Beauty and the Beast had been, was being produced in London and had been there for almost a year uh, with Don Hahn and, and, a, and a British directing team. And their story reel came into the, uh, to the Disney High Command and it was not, not particularly great. I mean, it was really pretty and, you know, it was beautiful to look at, but we, we said it's, it's kind of like watching an animated masterpiece theater. You know, it's just... If you've seen the, um, was it 1942, something like that, the Jean Cocteau um, uh, Beauty and the Beast, where it's very stately and the magic that happens is just kind of this floaty, flowy, you know, amorphous uh, power. And it, there's really no character to it. So um, that's kind of what this, what this London animated version was like. Was and, that was that director Richard Purdom's version? Yes, yes, it was. Now, so, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, is is it true the reason Disney didn't like the first storyboards from the previous director Purdom was because they were too dark? They weren't necessarily dark. They just were just kind of dull. You know, yeah. they, they 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 didn't. This is also coming on the heels of the Little Mermaid. You know, with um, Howard and Allen like really doing the Broadway number on Little Mermaid. And then you go to this, and it was just like this stately, you know, slog. It just, it just wasn't that that engaging. And you know, um, Jeffrey Katzenberg said, "Let's let's get Howard and Allen to do that Little Mermaid magic to it." And I don't think the Purdoms were crazy about that idea. And whether they left of their own accord or were encouraged to leave, I'm not sure. And I, I suppose it depends on who you ask, but. Suddenly that was, you know, without a, uh, without a directing team. So they asked Rob Minkoff again, and, and he said, sure, I'll do it, but you have to give me complete creative control, which I'm sure Disney had a good laugh at um, that concept. Uh, then they offered it to another guy who said he was interested in getting to live action and, you know, wasn't interested in doing animation. So Kirk and I were still kind of like floating around. We were drawing 
goofy as Tarzan of the Apes. We were doing Goofy of the Apes at that point. And we hadn't screwed up Cranium Command. And they said, okay, let's get those guys and bring them in. They weren't entirely confident in our ability. So they made us acting directors. You know, we were like not real directors. So Kirk's joke was, all right, I suppose we better start acting like directors. So getting that job after, um, you know, the prior director had it, did Uh it feel like you were taking over this massive directorial project that was sure to succeed or did it feel like you might be hopping onto a sinking ship or was it just like this is a job we're just going to come and do what they want us to do and do it the best we can what was the what was the mindset a little of the a little of the latter a little of okay you know here it is that they threw out everything except the title you know i mean it there was still bell there was still a beast but um i think I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think there was no Gaston. There was a um, uh, there was a suitor, and there may have been several suitors, like in you know the 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 old live action versions. But all of that got thrown out. I think there were several suitors, and Howard just mashed them all into one. That that was Howard's doing, and uh, and created Gaston. Um, and then he gave him LeFou as you know as the punching bag sidekick. I have always liked the idea of Beauty and the Beast and he had even done a couple little scribbles of it, like nothing like what you see now, but, but some little scribbles of it, like five or six years before I was like, oh, maybe this might be kind of cool someday and put them away and didn't think about it again, but always liked the story. Always thought this, this could make a great movie. So I, I never felt, I don't think anybody really felt we're being saddled with something you know, that's destined to fail. It's like, we're going to, we're going to do this. Um, and fortunately it wasn't until later that we were told, yeah, Walt Disney tried it and he couldn't, he couldn't like pull this out of the hat. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it confounded Disney, you know, like what, 30 years prior to that. And, and so they shelved it. We didn't know that. So we didn't know you couldn't do it. So we, we went ahead and did it. Uh, it's and, interesting because there's a similar story with the making of the Godfather a little bit in that, and, the, and although in that case, they thought it probably was a sinking. Some of them thought it was a sinking ship. Some of them didn't. Wow. You know what I mean? And it's funny and, how many movies are like that, that you hear like afterwards, like, oh, yeah, people, like, they had no confidence. Lion King was that way. You know, I mean, wow. it, it was a troubled picture for a, for a while. And people were like, oh, God, it's just Bambi with lions. You know, it's like it's it's not it's not going to do that great. Jeffrey Katzenberg himself said, guys, if this if this movie breaks a hundred million dollars, I'll eat my hat. And yeah, to my knowledge, he never ate any hats, but um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of movies that are like that, that, that you hear that, Oh yeah, this wasn't, this, this wasn't, um, uh, <laughs> didn't particularly have a lot of confidence in, in the, you know, the, the, the project. Now you mentioned that there was somebody else earlier who they were considering who said he wanted complete, you know, control. And of course they, said no way yeah going into this leading up to that first day on the job did you and kirk have any conversation about what creative or directorial principles you were going in with i mean like was it like okay as you know as the temporary directors or whatever you called you we're going to be open to these kinds of creative decisions close to those we're going to change this hire this person get rid of that person or did you not even have that ability to make those decisions at that point hiring and firing we we really had no input um, you know, it was like, you've got the Disney, the Disney team and they're behind you. 
you're not going to bring anybody in from the outside. And frankly, we had a lot of great people inside. Um, you know, that, that first trip to New York was Howard, Howard Ashman, Alan Menken, uh, Linda Wolverton was there. Um, Roger Allers, Brenda Chapman, Kevin Lehman, uh, Brian McEntee, Chris Sanders. I mean, there's all these people who eventually like rose up to, you know, direct and, and become great. And they, they were all like, you know, they're all like story guys and illustrators. Then, and we were able to just bring them all in. So it, it was a great team to start with. Um, as far as like what we could and couldn't do, I think Jeffrey gave us a pep talk and said, guys, this is your, this is your picture. You, you got to do this. You know, he wasn't saying I'm not trusting you because you're only, you're only temp. He was saying, you got to prove it to me now. You got to show me what you can do. So and, he didn't exactly clip your wings. He gave right. you some leeway, but just, but you know, um, yeah. Yeah. If you, screw up, if you screw up, you're out of here. But until then go for it. That was, that was kind of the, the message we had. Um, what do you consider to be your um, personal greatest contribution to the film? Was it character or story adjustment, an idea or style, something else entirely? Um, I mean, it's it's difficult to pinpoint my own personal contribution because we were always so collaborative. And one of the one of the things, you know, going in this this goes to your last question as well, is you keep an open mind. You know, it's like because there's going to be a lot of great ideas. The, the job we had, as we saw it, was just sift through them all and try and make it work, you know, try and keep the train on the track because there's going to be ideas that are going to be great, but they're going to, like, take you off, you know, someplace else. And you have to figure out what's what and keep it keep it going. So that was that was maybe a contribution, you know, just like keep, the, the other uh, the other analogy was the uh, the circus performer spinning all the plates. Yeah. You know, on, on, on the sticks. And like that one's getting wobbly over there. You gotta go run and get it. And, oh, that one's getting wobbly. And so we're doing a lot of that. I know one of the things we did um early on, and this was this might have been me and Kirk. This uh this might have been me and Chris. I can't remember exactly who it was, but really early on, you know, the um the magic in the castle was just you know kind of floating behind Bell. Every wish every wish of hers was uh was granted, you know, and attended to. So floating food, plates of food would follow her and lights would just illuminate as she passed. And if she wanted to sit, a chair would slide up. And, and we said, why aren't these characters, you know, why, why aren't, why aren't we making, why is it all this, you know, kind of, kind of floaty magic stuff. Let's turn them into characters. And that's where a clock, a candle and a teapot came from. And, admittedly with the most on the nose personality traits like oh the clock is tightly wound and the mm-hmm. and the candle is flaming with love and the teapot is warm and cozy it's like so what it worked you know yep and then they became disney on ice characters too right um <laughs> right. so so take us to the release weekend did you have an idea at that point as to whether you had a hit on your hands or not we we were really liking how it was how it was looking. I mean, we were we were very happy with the look. And again, this was um, this was before Disney split their their production team into two productions into parallel productions. So we had everybody great. All of the great people were were on our were on our film. And after after Beauty and the Beast, it split, and you had the Ron and John track, and you had the Gary and Kirk track, and you had the Mike and Hendel track, you know, it, it just went in different directions. 
And a lot of these people never worked together again. They saw each other all the time, but, oh, you're working on, you know, you're, you're working on this project and you're working on that project. So we had, we had everybody and we knew it looked great, you know, and, and we had, we had confidence. We didn't have confidence like Brian McEntee, our art director. He's the one that, you know, several months before release, he said, you guys are going to make a hundred million dollars with this. And we thought he was insane because no animated film had, you know, no, the closest was little mermaid and it made like 86. And that was like an insane success. So, we said no, and none of the rest of us thought that. I don't even think Don thought that, you know. But Brian, Brian saw, and so when it came out, um, and we had been doing test screenings, so we were kind of gauging audience reactions, and they were liking it. And we did the um, uh, the the work in progress screening, which got a huge great reaction. So we thought maybe maybe we got something here, you know, maybe, maybe this is going to do okay, and. So when it opened up and it opened up, well, yeah, we were like, you don't expect it, but you know, you hope. And, and we had enough like kind of feedback to, to like kind of pump up our hopes. So when it happened, we were like, this is awesome. You know, this is the greatest thing. When it, when it did make a hundred million, Don and Kirk and myself, we'd like ran to a liquor store, got a bottle of champagne and ran to Michael Eisner's office. We were going to like, yeah, we're the first, you know, the first animated thing to do this. And we were stopped cold, like at the door. No, you can't come in. His secretary said, you can't go in. And we're like, don't you know who we are? Don't you know what we did? And, and um, she said, you have to sit here. You have to wait. You cannot go in. And so we just kind of cooled our heels, you know, for a good like 15 minutes until the door opened up. And Michael Eisner walks out with these two or three like giant guys in super expensive suits. And, you know, they, they nice to see you. I hope to talk to you again, you know, and, and they go out. They were from the Vatican. Oh, <laughs> and we, yeah. And so we went, Oh, okay. Um, all right. Hi, we're the cartoon kids here. And we just made a lot of money. Here's some champagne, you know? So then we went in and we had our celebration, but yeah, that that kind of put us in our place a little bit. Now, when the return started coming in, did you get a call from anyone at the studio? Did Casper call you? Was any? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think Jeffrey did. I think he called everybody that that day. You know, I was like, whatever the opening weekend numbers were, he called. Congratulations! And there, Jeffrey had this thing where he he would do this like kind of regularly to different productions, and it was on his schedule. You've got literally thirty seconds with Jeffrey, you know, and and. And he's walking around with his phone and his secretary, you know, at the switchboard is like, okay, you're on with Kirk Wise. Kirk, buddy, how's it going? Just wanted to say congratulations and all right, good work. Okay, like next. Gary, congratulations, good work, buddy. You know, and, and so he that was his morning, you know, and he was doing that all day. And so he called everybody. And to his credit, you know, as, as mechanical as that sounds, it was really nice, you know, and people really responded to it. So Beauty and the Beast goes on to become, I think, the only animated picture up to that point to be nominated for Best Picture by the Academy. Right. Has it ever, like, did, when did that dawn on you just how special that was, what you guys achieved was? Or, or has it never completely <laughs> Has it ever? <laughs> has it ever sunk in? Um, there, was, there was a lot of push for it um, by the studio. You know, and there, there, the um, the big one-page ads in the in the Hollywood trades, and the whole um, the the whole um, 
work in progress showing in, in New York. Uh, that was part of that. You know, that was, that was, I think, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Terry Press's idea to let people know, let the public know that animation isn't something that you just like throw buckets of money in one end of machine and film comes out another. There's a lot of people working really hard at this. This is what it takes to do it, you know? And so you could see the rough pencil drawings, you could see the storyboards and, you know, this is with paint, this is without paint, this is with a black and white background. So you could see the process, you know, and it, it wasn't, if this had been done, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you would have seen a giant paintbrush go through and, and, you know, the magic drips of paint and everything would have been colored. This was, this was much more, um, <laughs> this was much more nuts and bolts. And so that, that was geared to it as well. So, and there was, there was buzz. People were talking about it and the golden globes didn't hurt any either. You know, that was, that was something that uh, I don't think we were expecting at all at that point. But when that happened, we were like, wow, okay, great. You know, that's, that's sometimes an indicator, you know, so oh, that's definitely again, a precursor most of the time. Yeah. Our, our, you know, our, our expectations went up another couple of notches, but it was still not until that morning that, um, that that the uh, the the nominees were read off in New York at like eight in the morning in New York, which was five in the morning in Los Angeles. So everybody in Los Angeles, you know, that that worked on it was sitting in front of the their TV and their bathrobes and their pajamas and their underwear and whatever, and like watching. At the time, I had a uh, uh, a three year old at home, so I couldn't like go yeah, I couldn't yell, you know, because it would wake him up. Um, you run outside to scream, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, go, go, go! Lock yourself in the car and scream as loud as you can. Right, right. So, yeah, and so, so that was that was pretty amazing, right then. It's like, oh my god, we we just got nominated, and like you said, it was the first time um, that an animated picture had been nominated for best for best picture. To my mind, it's the only time because that was when there were only five nominees allowed. They've since opened it up to ten, and Pixar has picked up. You know. To me, that's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, they'll let anybody in now. But um, yeah. um, at that time, it was it was a big deal. Um, I remember running to a liquor store on my way to work and getting a couple bottles of champagne and a few gallons of orange juice, and you know we were gonna have mimosas. When I got to work, they were way ahead of me. You know, the the uh, the secretary's desk was a bar, and people were <laughs> people were well into it already. So yeah, it was a that was an alcohol day. Now, in the in the midst of all we've discussed so far, uh, you had a, a hand, I guess, in the Lion King a little bit. What do you remember about that session, working on that story, and did any of your contributions make it into the final film? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I well, I remember at that time I was I was happy to to draw again. I was happy to do storyboards again, and not have to be in in the big. Uh, you know, the, the big meetings, we did have a big meeting kind of early on to like, kind of change the direction of the film because it was like, I said before, it was kind of floundering. They didn't know what was going to, it was Bambi with lions and you know, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this more epic? You know, how are we going to make this a, a better story? And there was a bunch of us around the room and some of the, some of the ideas were, um, I, think one of my ideas they, they had already talked about you know just like upping the you know the the royalty and the bloodline and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff and i think um it might have been my idea to to kind of bring the, the arthurian 
Um, you know, the land is the king, the king is the land. You know, when the, when the king is deposed, the land suffers. So when everything is wasteland um, in the pride lands at the end, that's because the king is gone. And, uh, you know, I, I had a hand in that. But actual storyboarding, um, there was the, 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 the scene between like little Simba and Scar, you know, when, when Simba's just crawling all over Scar, oh, you know, you're, you're my, you're my crazy uncle and you're so weird. And, and Scar says, you have no idea. And, you know, that was mine. And I did some versions of Timon and Pumbaa. Most of that was, was redone and, and not in there anymore. Um, but the, uh, the song, Scar's song with the hyena, at the at the end, that be prepared. I, I boarded that, oh, so wow. that was that that was that was my helping. <laughs> now, were you also involved in, in story development or anything with with Aladdin? Very very early on, um, you know, this is this is when I was in development again, and um, Ron and John said, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever you can do, you know, here's here's the script, here's the here's the songs, and I had heard the songs before, and there were extra songs in there. This, this is when Howard had some, some additional songs that I don't know if they, did they do that in Broadway? I don't remember, but, but there were songs in there that were ultimately cut, you know, that Howard, I think was, was kind of sad, you know, because they were, they, you know, very personal to him. But at any rate, um, I, I just, I did some drawing, just some single drawings, not storyboards, but single drawing setups, and visual development for a friend like me. And I don't think, I think there's one gag, like one line, you know, when, when the genie says, when, when, he, when Aladdin's looking at a menu, he says, try some of column A, try all of column B, and these two columns shoot up. That was mm -hmm. columns. Yeah. Now your next big project, um, the hunchback of Notre Dame, was that film even on your radar before Jeffrey Katzenberg called you? Nope. What, what's the story behind that call? Uh, Kirk and I were working on an um, on a different project. Um, it, it was a an Orpheus and Eurydice project, and we'd been on that for several months. I think David Getz was on that with us as well, mm -hmm. and um, so we were working on that, not making a huge amount of headway, but we still had confidence that we could that we could figure it out so, um and we just got this call out of the blue it's like jeffrey katzenberg on line one kind of thing and he was on a um um one of those star tech phones you know the a speaker phone. Flips. yeah i had one of those yeah and and uh so kirk and i were both there and he goes guys drop everything you, you're going to be doing something else we went, what like what it's like you're just going to be doing something that's going to change your life that's all and um and he, he spelled out, he's like, yeah, you guys are going to be doing Hunchback of Notre Dame. We've already got um, Alan and Steven Schwartz. Um, we, and uh, he didn't, he didn't explain to us at that time. We found out like in the following day or two that David Staten had presented the, uh, the project to, um, you know, to Jeffrey and, you know, the higher ups based on a comic book. And, and they said, yeah, okay. And Michael Eisner really liked the story. I mean, he liked the classic Victor Hugo story. So so they said yes to David, and then Jeffrey came to us. We were first on the list this time. And, in fact, 
Jeffrey used us as bait. Just he, uh, he he told he told Alan and Stephen, yeah, we got Gary and Kirk, and then he told me and Kirk, yeah, we got Alan and Stephen. So he's like playing <laughs> us off of each other, like Welcome the pro Hollywood. he is. Yeah, here you guys were truly about to embark on perhaps one of Disney's probably darkest animated films ever, I guess to me at least. When you guys accepted the job, did you already have an idea as to what you wanted out of the story or how dark you thought it would be or needed to be? It was, was it based um, on that comic book it version? It was a balancing or? act because, because we had both read the story before. We were both familiar with, with the book. And and th we then immersed ourselves in all the film versions that we could get our hands on. And yeah, it was super dark. I mean, yeah. it was like, it was really like, okay, this is a classic. This is a literary classic. It's been done, you know, a half a dozen times in the last, you know, 75 years. Um, how, how the hell are we going to turn this into a Disney, into a Disney cartoon, you know, it, without screwing it up. That was the balance, you know, it's like, here's here's this this you know this dark literary classic here's mickey mouse and donald duck you know we, yeah, gotta, we gotta make we it gotta kid like, friendly somehow but still tell the story we got yeah without screwing it up and of course you know it's not just a literary classic it's a french literary classic and we're gonna piss off france if we do it wrong so you know we we knew we had to like really tread carefully by both honoring the story and keeping it as close to the story as we could but still being aware that we're working for Disney and this is this is going to be a family film. I'm curious, what was the studio's first reaction upon listening to the lyrics and seeing the presentation of Claude Frollo's song Hellfire? <laughs> um, well, we were the first ones to see it. Um, Paul and Gaetan Britzi, the uh, the Britzi brothers, who um, uh, they they had had a studio in Paris uh, and. Disney basically bought him out and said, okay, you're working for us now. And Paul and Gaetan came to the States and were working as board artists and they can draw like nobody else. I mean, they're, they're absolutely fantastic draftsmen. And I think they had kind of an affinity towards that song. You know, when, when we were, uh, you know, looking at it in the script, like where it's going, what it, what its job is in, in terms of storytelling and the song itself. And they said, give this to us. And um, we put, you know, we, we let them go and they like shut themselves in their office for at least a week and uh, probably closer to two weeks, never saw them, like never saw them at all. And then they came out with like seven or eight boards, you know, of, of you know, all these beautifully rendered story sketches and they played it. And we had heard the song before this and we were like, oh boy, this is going to be a, this is going to be a tough sell. Yeah. And Paul and Gaetan presented it just on a little cassette recorder, you know, a little portable cassette recorder, like hit play. And then they, you know, pointed to the drawings as the song as it went on. progressed. Yeah. And by the end of it, we were all just, I think all of us silent, all of us slack jawed. Kevin Harkey, like did a quick sketch of Frollo with a cigarette at the end, like tacked it as the very last drawing. And and we went, wow, okay, this is this is amazing. How are we going to do this? You know, and so we we presented it to uh, Peter Schneider and uh, Tom Schumacher, and they also they said, this is amazing. How are we going to do this? You know, they they also clearly loved it, but we're also like, I think we're kind of happy to kick it upstairs. And Michael Eisner, 
Roy, Roy Disney may have had a little bit of trepidation, but Michael Eisner is the one that said, no, let's, let's do it. You know, this, this honors the, the tone of the story. And this, you know, this, this is good. I think if we, I think if we um, soften this, we do it a huge disservice and we do the film a huge disservice. And so to his credit, Michael Eisner, you know, came through on this. So, I mean, and there's so many powerful and slightly risque themes and moments. Uh, and I wonder if there was ever any discussion in the studio or pushback against any of it, you know, any decisions you guys made specifically. I mean, like we were like, they could have easily went, hey, guys, we can't have a song called Hellfire, you right. know, that kind of thing. Was there was there anything that you guys wanted to do that they went, uh, uh no, 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 that's too much. Well, Okay, so when Paul and Gaetan originally boarded um, Hellfire, and you see Esmeralda dancing in the fire, right? Yes. This, this figure of her dancing. A little kind of stripper-like a little bit. What's that? A little stripper-like, kind of, sort of. She was nude in the drawings. Yeah. You know, in, in the, and, and we attributed it to them being French. They said, oh, yeah, they're French. Yeah, that's, that's and, it. But, you know, we knew, and Roy Disney said, you're, you're going to make sure that she's got clothes on. And so... Um, I sat with the um, with with the head of effects. I I worked with uh, the effects team very closely, so I sat with the head of effects, and we went through every effects drawing, you know, of Esmeralda on fire, and made sure she was dressed every single drawing. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have mind if it had been you know more of this this dark fantasy with you know like Paul and Gaetan had envisioned, but um, yeah, okay, we'll 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 do this. And then the um, when it got to the ratings board, because we thought, okay, so this got by Roy and it got by Michael and it got by Tom and Peter and us, and, you know, so we're all okay with it and it's it's done and it's gorgeous, but you know, it'll knock your socks off. What what is the ratings board going to say? And um, ultimately, they said they were they were only uncomfortable with the word sin. Because um, when Frollo, when Frollo's got that that scarf, and he says, "This burning desire is turning mm -hmm. me to sin," and he sits down, and those those red robed judges whoosh up, and they said, mm, "Turning turning to sin, huh?" Well, and we said, "Well, we can't really re-record it because it's animated and in color, and you know, recorded and everything, but we can play with the sound levels." So we just upped up to the sound effects of the whoosh of the judges and we dropped the uh, the vocal performance of the word sin so turning me to like that yeah you can still kind of hear it but it's but it's ducked enough that it satisfied the rating boards and they they let it go through and tab murphy the writer said hunchback of notre dame is the most r-rated g movie you'll ever see no that that, that, make, that makes sense and and tony j in that song wow um, yeah. Were Were you in any of the recording sessions for these songs? Uh, yeah. And it, it hell, what about Hellfire? Were you in it for Hellfire too, or no? Yes. Yes. Um, I had heard Tony took extra voice lessons in order to adjust his natural singing range to hit the final note in that song. Is that true? I think he did. I think he might have. Um, I mean, he didn't on the spot. That was, it was yeah. like kind of on the outside, but he did hit those. Stephen and Alan, they yeah. put him through the ringer on that, but but Tony delivered. In in my opinion, you, Kirk, Alan, Stephen, Tony, all of you guys created one of the best Disney villain songs of all time. I think it, it, it probably tops Be Prepared in my book. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, when was the first time you started receiving music from Alan 
Mencken and Steven Schwartz for the film. And when you got it, what were your initial thoughts when you stopped and listened to it? Did you feel like it was like you had lightning in a bottle? I mean, we I'd worked with we had all worked with Alan before, so we knew we knew how he worked and we knew how good he was and how good he is. And not having worked with Stephen, but aware of his you know his, his musical portfolio of, of his pedigree, so we knew that that he was going to be someone good. The studio had been searching for a worthy replacement for Howard for some time. Um, in my opinion, they've never found it. You know, Howard is like one of those talents that comes along every hundred years or so. Um, but Stephen was really, really damn good. And um, they had ideas for music when we were going through uh, the storyboards and the, you know, the script pages and all that. And there were places where Stephen, places where we didn't think of for songs. He said, I think I can help you here. I, I, you know, I think we can, if we put a song here, this, this can, uh, this can maybe bridge this a little bit better than what you're doing with this scene. And great, let's do that. You know? So, so they were in very early in the process. Um, if not actually with the music in mind, they were spotting music, like where music could go. So, so we were aware of where their, their thoughts for music were, you know? So like the opening number, um, you know, uh, Frollo chasing down Quasimodo's mother and you know, the, the front of the cathedral and the archdeacon. And um, we didn't, I mean, that wasn't necessarily a choral spot. It's not, it's not really a song, but I mean, as far as a musical moment, I think for our temp music, we were using the, uh, the Requiem Mass from Mozart there and boarding it to that. And so Stephen said, okay, I, I see where you're going here. And then, you know, he did his, and he was very big on the, you know, the Latin and liturgical um, aspect of the music to go with the, with Notre Dame. And we were fine with that. So that's kind of how it went. You know, sometimes we would have a piece of temp music that would, that would uh, let Stephen springboard from. Sometimes he came to us and said, I think this is a good place for music. I think it should be like this. And, you know, one one of the most valuable lessons I learned early on um, in my career from Chuck Jones, of, of all people, was let your people do their job. Don't try and do it all for them because they're probably better at it than you are. You know, let them do it and they'll make you look good. You know, so so, you know, keeping an open mind to this kind of thing was was pretty important to us. So at that point. You and Kirk had two quite incredible animated feature films under your belt, both of which made the studio a lot of money and contributed to the golden age of 90s 2D animation. Did you guys have free reign to make whatever movie you wanted after that, or were you still at the mercy? You know, I mean, ultimately, I guess we did have free reign or free-ish reign, but, um, you know, it, the, the thing with Disney is you work and you work and you work and you, and you know, they, they'll yell at you and, and harangue you and, and then you do good and you're king for a day or a week or whatever. And then when that, you know, when that wears off, you take the crown off, you put the dunce cap back on and, you know, it's back to work. And, and there's another king two weeks after that. There's another it's, king. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Get off the throne. This guy's. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but after hunchback, um, we were kind of kind of sitting back and like taking it easy for a little bit because we could and the studio was letting us um and it was don Hahn that said look guys 
um, if you want to, A, keep this team together, and that was always a priority for us, and that was always one of the saddest parts about these films, is you get this great team together that, you know, you've worked with and communicated with, and you know them, and they know you, and then, boom, they're gone. You know, just it just spread to the winds. But the the opportunity to keep the team together, and also, Don said, if you want to do something, if we want to do another movie, now is the time to figure out what we want to do rather than have the studio tell us what they want us to do. So that led to the, um, uh, the much storied uh, um, meeting in a Mexican restaurant with Don Kirk, Tab Murphy and myself and figuring out that we were going to do Atlantis. Uh, yeah. And as you just mentioned, your next feature film went on to what I would argue is one of the best kept secrets of Disney animation, Atlantis, the lost empire. Where did yeah. the first idea for such a story come about? Well, I mean, at this, at this restaurant, um, we, um, we, we, we all kind of said, okay, we've done, we've done a couple musicals. We did. Okay. Um, and Disney very much, you know, was in this pattern of doing the Broadway musical uh, formula, you know, because they were they were doing, well, we did Beauty, then there was Aladdin, then there was Hunchback, then there was Pocahontas, and, you know, it was like all of these, that was the formula, that was success, and Disney, you know, Disney loves success, so they wanted to do that. And we said, you know, not only are we getting a little weary of this formula, we think the audiences are going to get kind of tired of it as well. It's like, oh, it's another, another goddamn Disney musical. It's like, okay, I guess we'll watch it. We'll take the kids and dump them off. But we wanted to do something else. We want to do something um, different and preferably without songs. And um, was that decided early on? Because I was going to ask you about that. Did you decide you were done with musicals for a while or? Yeah, we did. That, that came pretty early. And that, that was like the four of us. We said, yeah, you know, Honestly, all things considered, songs have been very good to us. Musicals have been very good to us. But the company's doing a lot of musicals. And <laughs> I just don't know if we want to do another musical. It's going to be more of the same. Can we try something different and, you know, like kind of wake people up again? And it was around that time that we said, maybe, you know, those those old Disney uh, live action things from like the 50s and 60s, you know, the uh, Swiss Family Robinson and and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and, you know, all, all those like really cool action adventure things from from that time. What if we did an animated version of that? I mean, it's it's in the Disney canon. We can it's we can point and say, look, Walt Disney did that, you know, and and um, I believe it was it was either Kirk or Don that said we can use the. Um, the analogy that when you go to Disneyland and you're walking down the main street and right ahead is the, is the castle, the Sleeping Beauty's castle. And you go straight through that, which is what we've been doing for the last 50 years. And you're into fantasy land. But if we hung a left at the, you know, at the circle there, you're in adventure land and we want to go to adventure land this time. And that's kind of what's, that's kind of what sold us with the executives was that analogy. It's like, we're not straying away from Disney. We're just going to, we're going to a different land in Disney. So, you know, that's, that's how we were able to, to kind of, um, that was our Jedi mind trick. Now, even then without it being a musical, um, 
without the score that James Newton Howard created for you guys for the film, I, I would think the movie would probably lose a lot of its magic and mystique. Absolutely. How important did you think the score was going to be for the film? And when did James Newton Howard come on board? Um, I mean, we always knew that that music was important. I mean, me being like the least musical person on earth, even I know that that music the the right music can elevate a scene amazingly, you know, amazingly well, just as bad music can ruin it. And um I just saw recently there was a it was a scene from Star Wars. I think it was like Darth Vader is like walking in to uh you know to the to this area on the on the on his giant imperial cruiser and his generals are looking like kind of nervous and apprehensive and they changed it from the Darth Vader music to like some kind of love story theme and it totally changed it it was like suddenly they're like anticipating something kind of nice here and it was like it was hilarious but that's what music can do you know it's like you get different music and it can it can really change things so we knew that music was going to be a huge part of this and even even our, our temp music, we were like really careful and really worked hard, you know, with our music editors and our editors, like, let's get something in here that really helps this theme. And so when we, when we got James in, it's like, okay, here's, here's what we want to do. Unfortunately, he was, you know, way better than, than us and said, you know, okay, I, I, I gotcha. Just let, let me do this. Let him and, just let him do his thing. And then, yeah, let him do his thing. And, like for instance, the crystal chamber music it was like he. I think he mentioned to us, yeah, I, I kind of have this, you know, slightly more, uh, slightly more tribal, but but not quite tribal, and a little bit mystical, but you know, orchestral. And we we're like, oh yeah, okay, whatever, <laughs> go do it. And and he came back with that that music that is, you know, arguably some of the best in the film. How did you decide on the incredible art style for Atlantis? Because to me, it's one of the most beautiful 2D animated films made. Well, we wanted something. At, at that time, um, there was a lot of a lot of digital animation was, was starting to catch on, you know, and, and and it has that, you know, that real rounded and airbrushed and photorealistic look to it that. Honestly, when you when you look at it, you know, from film to film to film to film, it all kind of looks the same, regardless of the graphic language. You get this, you know, beautiful photorealistic lighting and, and shading, and it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. And we wanted to go opposite that. We wanted to make it look like an illustration, you know, a, a, a not even a painting, you know, a painterly painting. Like when when we did Beauty, Brian's uh, Brian's assessment of that was I want it to be like Bambi, but with interiors. And so there was a lot of that, you know, that kind of French, uh, the French Renaissance, you know, the, the shading and the, and the blocks of colors. And, and we like said- Like a moving painting. Be, what's that? Like a moving painting. Right, exactly. But we wanted it, to, we wanted number one for the character, we knew the characters were going to be flat. That's just the thing with 2D. But we said, if we can do that with the, with the backgrounds as well. And we, we found some, uh, some turn of the century painters um, that that used gradations of color rather than blends of color, you know, so it looked like almost like like cut paper on, on top of each other to give it a flat look in the backgrounds, but still give it dimension and, you know, a, a beautiful uh, palette. And then you could put your your uh, 
your flat character on that, and the character worked with the background much better. And Kirk and I were both huge fans of Mike Mignola and Hellboy, and we said this would be so cool because we liked his graphic style, you know, his boldness, his use of black, um, you know, his design sense. We, we just, both of us were, you know, really loved it. And so we contacted him and evidently he was really surprised. He's like, what, <laughs> how'd you get my number? But, um, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, he came through and, and he had some really great story ideas as well. So, um, yeah, it, it was that was a big win for us. Well, and I don't remember myself seeing anything exactly quite like it before. Was it kind of a new art style or drawing style at the time, or was it something that had been dabbled with but just never put on that scale? But that that particular style for yeah. Atlantis. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, the closest you could probably come um, was like the Ivan Earl uh, inspired work in. Uh, um, Sleeping Beauty, you know, just the, the the big shapes and, you know, kind of his color treatment. But this was a lot more flat, a lot more comic book and, and uh, you know, illustrative than than painted. So, and we even had um, kind of uh, classes for the for the animators, you know, like how to draw Mike Mignola hands, you know, here's the hand, but the, the fingers are squared off and the fingernails are more triangular or, you know, more blocky. They're not round with a little cuticle and so yeah it was it was a whole a whole learning process for everybody to like get that new style how did you guys decide on the opening five minutes of the film because to me it's one of the more thrilling dynamic kind of otherworldly openings i've seen <laughs> it kind of feels like you went from zero to a hundred in a nanosecond and then back right um originally and if you've seen the uh um i think the 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 dvd with like the the extras you know the the added stuff you you can see the original opening which was we had a viking ship um you know like like growing out and and the the captain of the ship had the shepherd's journal and was speaking in icelandic which we were told by our linguist was the closest you know to uh in what the viking we, we thought it would be like like norwegian yeah and he said now when the vikings went when the vikings went and colonized iceland they pretty much stayed there and that was the language it was spoken, you know, the, the mm. language the Vikings spoke went to Iceland and stayed that way basically until World War II because nobody went there. And so the language didn't wow. have all these other influences coming at it until World War II when the U.S. set up a, you know, a radar base there. So we had every Icelandic actor in Los Angeles, all three of them, um, in, you know, doing these Viking voices and they, you know, they went home after the first night and were like calling their grandparents, like, okay, how would you say this? And what, what's the phrase for that? So, <clears throat> so it was pretty, you know, pretty authentic as far as like old Icelandic slash Viking. Um, so these Vikings were out on the high sea with this, with this shepherd's journal and they get taken down by the Leviathan, you know, the, the still guarding the portal and it, and it, you know, took them down and we end with a floating book. And then we wipe to uh, um, to the Smithsonian, and that's entirely animated, entirely in color. It's done. You know, it was we were like ready to cut it on, and John Sanford, who was our head of story, said, "This is it's something's something's wrong here. You know, it's it's just not connecting. You know, we we don't really care about the we don't really care about the Vikings. 
We don't get to Atlantis till about a half an hour in, and we don't see any of the Atlanteans. This is their story too. This is their problem, and we there's nothing to connect us. You know, we need to. So that that was his idea to bring them into the beginning of the film, but we didn't really know how. I had an idea. It's like okay, I think I think I know what to do. I uh, you're gonna love this. Um, I went to a strip club and and boarded the whole thing out on a napkin and. Uh, you know, in, in that one night and came back with it the next day. And we gave it, I think, to Todd Kurosawa and he boarded it out beautifully. And that, that became the, uh, that, that became the opening. Now, and, we, and we had said, let it be the last day, you know, it's, it's the last day of Atlantis and what happens then. Do you think the pendulum will ever swing back towards 2d animation? Is there like a, a piece of technology on the horizon that can make 2d more cost effective? So studios will start, making tentpole 2d films again or has the has has that ship sailed so hard to tell um i mentioned i mentioned earlier that that after a while a lot of the uh, a lot of the 3d digital stuff looks the same and when i was at dreamworks they had a uh, they they had a little conference day you know like an, an off-campus conference where they had like directors producers executives etc and talking about how can, how can we stand out from the crowd? How can we make things look different? And they had put together um, a, a little reel of like 30 second clips of all the animated uh, features from like that year and the year before and, you know, what was coming out. And I mean, this was a few years ago, but everything, like I said, it, it all looked the same. Cookie cutter. Graphic language was different. So you'd have something like Madagascar, and then you'd have something like Shrek, then you'd have something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you know, so the very different graphic styles. But again, it's like there's that lighting, there's that shading, there's that photorealism. It's like, yeah, it's just all blending together. And then what really popped was the Simpsons movie, and everybody went, "Doink, yeah, that," you know, and, and that's what really stood out. And of course, you know, they, they completely ignored the advice and went back to, you know, 3D shading. But but yeah, it, it really it really popped out. You know, it really stood apart from all the rest. And I gotta hope that, you know, someday they'll do that. When when Ron and John did Princess and the Frog, I thought, okay, maybe, you know, may, maybe this will catch on, but I guess it is still kind of prohibitively expensive and people still like that 2D or that 3D look. But then you see things like, um, you know, like Arcane come out, you know, and that's like, that's got a whole different look to it. Or Klaus, which is the 2D, 3D uh, um, hybrid that was gorgeous. So I have hope. Do you think it's even possible to have another movie like Atlantis or Hunchback made? I mean, I, I don't think Disney's killed anyone in an animated film in quite some time. Uh, much less had a, much, much less. So we got some time to yeah, make up for. Much less, much less had a villain anywhere close to, to Claude Frollo. I mean, sure, anything is possible. As they say, in an infinite universe, all things are possible. But um, honestly, at this point, I don't really see it, but I don't know. Gary, <laughs> th thank you so much for joining us today. Um, sure, it's my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Truesdale.